Happy Father's Day. I can't wait to see all of you again, and we are hopeful that next week will be the time that we will be gathering back together in the church. We are working hard to make arrangements so that everybody can come together, or at least as many as we can fit in here at 50% capacity, and have a wonderful time together seeing one another and worshiping together. But today, I trust that you will just allow your heart to be full of the presence of the Lord. Relax and enjoy it. For those of you who are fathers today, we honor you. I pray that your family will gather around you and, and just begin to speak into your life of everything that you mean to them. As we prepare our hearts for worship today, I would just ask that you would engage and that you would let your heart open up because the Lord wants to speak to you today. And so again, I wish you happy Father's Day. Let's worship the Lord together. Yeah. 
to you, Jesus, as a living sacrifice. May the meditations of our hearts and the words of our mouths be a sweet aroma of praise to you, Jesus. We lift it up to you. We glorify you, Jesus. We praise you, Lord. In your name, amen. Happy Father's Day. I trust that by now, dads, you may already have some stuff planned to put on the grill in a few minutes, and I just want to take this opportunity just to share some thoughts with you this morning that might add to the joy of your day. Uh, A few weeks ago, when my kids were living with us as they were sheltered in place with us, I was having a conversation with my 10-year-old grandson, and uh, he was saying something, and I responded with a line from the movie from The Princess Bride, And I said, this is inconceivable. And he stopped me and he looked at me and he goes, what does that mean? And I said, have you never seen the movie, The Princess Bride? I said, because there's one-liners in this that you're going to need growing up just to be cool. So we decided that night that we would get our family together and that we would watch that classic movie, The Princess Bride. And in this movie, for those of you that may not see it, you you probably are going to want to add this to your family watching list very shortly. Uh, There's a grandfather that comes over to the house of his grandson who's homesick that day. And as he's laying in his bed, the grandfather said, I have a book that I want to read to you. And so the rest of the movie is acted out as he narrates this story to his grandson. And then every now and then he would pause in the story because there was a point that he and his grandson needed to talk about just to make that would add some value to his grandson's life. And I discovered as I watched this movie for I don't know how many times I've seen it, I love good stories. And I love good storytellers. That's probably one of the reasons why people like Max Lucado, I love to read their books because they're such great storytellers in all they do. And so this morning, on this Father's Day, I would like to do something a little bit different for the Father's Day message. Normally, I know that it's a day we get dads in here and we tell them everything you're not doing right and how you can do better. And if you just ask God to help you, everything will be good. Today, I want to take a different approach. Number one, I don't have to actually look you in the face because you're not sitting here. But also because I believe that on this day that there's some things that God wants to just bring joy into your life with. And so I want to tell you a story. It's a Bible story. And if I was to title this story, it would be from an orphan 
to a queen. And some of you are going, well, if it's a Bible story about an orphan to a queen, then I know where it's from. It's probably from the book of Esther, and you're correct. But in this account, Mordecai isn't a father by choice. In fact, he's an adoptive father. Maybe he's a single dad. For all we know, because his wife is never mentioned, we don't know that he's even married, but he lived 500 years before Christ. He was a minority living in an oppressed land. And what you have in the book of Esther is this riveting drama that is carefully sewn together by an unnamed author. It may have been Mordecai himself. But what you also have in this is only one of two books in the Bible where the name of God is not mentioned. The other book is the Song of Solomon. But though God's name is not mentioned in this story, his fingerprints are all over this account, on every page, and it's all over the providential theme of what God is doing in this story. Now, it may, been, it may have been a while since you have gone through the book of Esther, so let me review a little bit with you the characters. First of all, there's Mordecai. Mordecai is a key player in this drama. We don't know what he does for a living, but he's probably an important person because we often find him at the city gates. That's where the decision makers and the people of influence linger. We know that he is Jewish. We know that he adopts his cousin, and her name is Hadassah, which is interesting because in Persian, that means dazzling beauty. Can you imagine the pressure of a little girl whose name is dazzling beauty growing up? Her Jewish name is Esther. So we're going to call her Esther. And as we begin to think about this, we have a Jewish man living in an oppressed land, raising his cousin as his own daughter. And we think, man, this story is starting to get interesting, isn't it? Then there's King Xerxes. He is a king over a massive realm, 127 different provinces, stretching from India to Ethiopia. He has a wife. Her name is Queen Vashti. Now, Queen Vashti is only in scene one of chapter one of this story because she's a little too spunky for her time, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But the story, as you begin to jump into this book of Esther, it starts with some banquets, and I mean some banquets. The king has decided to display his power and his strength, and he's invited all of the important people of the world to come to the capital city of Susa for a party. And as you read this story, this party lasts, listen to this, 180 days. It is a six-month-long party. And then as you get to the end, as it's describing the end of this party, just as a little wrap-up, they decide to throw a banquet. And this banquet, kind of an after-party, it lasts seven days. And so in this seven-day after-party of 180 days worth of, of partying together, the king decides that he wants his queen to come, and he tells her to put on your crown, and, and I want you to come because he wants to display her before all of the men that have gathered for this party. Now, as you read this, you begin to think, do you think he wanted to display her because of her intellect? I don't think so either. And she says, as she's heard this invitation that she's supposed to come and be displayed before all of these men, she goes, there's no way I'm stepping in there. You have been drunk for 180 days, 
and now you're on a seven-day binge, and now you want to show off my looks, and you want me to strut around so that everybody can be jealous of you. I'm not about to step into that room. Now, folks, the king didn't like this. He was furious. And he gathered together some of the officials of the land and they begin to discuss what are they going to do about this. And in the wisdom of that group of men, they decided that not only must she be removed from office, but that a letter had to be sent to every province in every language. And the very last line of that decree, which we find in the very last sentence of chapter 1, says this. Every man should be ruler over his own household. In other words, submission by legislation. Yeah, that doesn't always work. The consequence was that Vashti was no longer the queen. And this king needs a queen. And so they begin to come up with ways in which they could find a new queen for him. And so they decided to put out a beauty search. It was the biggest search in the history of the world to find just the right woman to be the next queen. And at the end of several chapters talking about what they went through, he selects one. And guess who he chooses? It's Esther. And we meet her in chapter 2, verse 7. The scripture says, Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, who he had brought up because she had no father or mother. This girl, who was also known as Esther, was lovely in form and features. And Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. Now let me interrupt the story here to bring out the first point that I think we as fathers can gather from this. The first principle of good fatherhood decisions is this. Good fathers keep deciding to be fathers. Mordecai decided to be a father. Somehow in the great consequence of events, this little girl was left with no mother or father. And he could have said, listen, I am not a good prospect to be a father, or I don't have any of the qualities to be a potential father. He could have said, just send her to Jerusalem. But something in Mordecai said, I can raise this child. And he made a decision to be a dad. I have a personal theory. And that is that for nine months, when our wives carry our children in their womb, they get to know these kids pretty well. They feel every movement. They feel every kick. They are the ones that have the sickness that comes along with pregnancy. They have the sleepless nights, the heartburn, the constant trips to the bathroom. And try as we might, we men simply cannot relate. But when a child is born after nine months, this mother, the mothers are very familiar with their children by then. And so it's like the birth of a friend. And, and right there, they're... They, it is as if they've already known this child for quite some time. But we guys, especially first-time fathers that have been there with their wives when they've given birth, they are shocked by what they have just witnessed. And they look at that baby that has been born, and it's as if a stranger has entered their house. I can remember standing by the bedside of Cindy when our daughter was born, and as they held this little baby and the doctor said, would you like to hold her? My first thought was, what in the world have I gotten myself into? It was just beginning to hit me. But it had already hit Cindy because she'd had nine months to get to know this baby. And I had to make a decision at that moment that every father does at that point. You see, fatherhood doesn't begin at conception. 
with dads as much as it does at delivery. And a dad has to say, I choose to be a dad. I'm making a decision to be a dad. And that decision sets in motion a whole lifestyle of decisions that's called fatherhood. And fatherhood is, in essence, a series of decisions that men make with their families and their children every day. Stephen Covey, for example, says that every day across America, fathers drive home from work. Some of the fathers make a decision that they will be a father when they get home, and others do not. He said the wisest decisions that a dad can make is to take off the hat of work and realize the moment I get out of my car at home, I'm re-adopting my children again today. I choose to make the decision to be their father. That's what Mordecai did. Now, you really need to pay attention to scene three because the queen is lost in scene one. A queen is found in scene two. Esther is the queen. And then something happens in scene three because a plot is discovered. There are two people that Mordecai overhears near the gates plotting to overthrow the king. Listen to their names because I love their names in this. Big Fana and Teresh. Big Fana. Don't you just get an image in it? He, his name sounds like a villain. Big Thana and Teresh are making this plot, and they're going to overthrow the king, and Mordecai hears it, and he tells Esther, and Esther tells the right people. And the fact that Mordecai overheard the plot and told the right people, and the king's life was saved, was written down in a court record. And that's a very important piece of this story. It is written almost like a great novelist. Whoever wrote this book put this piece of information in just the right place. You say, well, what difference does that make? Ah, stay with me, you're going to find out. Because in scene four, a villain enters, and his name is Haman. Haman is a raging bigot. He is arrogant, and his ego is the size of Persia. We don't know how in the world that he came to be second in command over Persia, but what we know is that once he got there and once he got the notoriety and the power, he used it to his advantage every time. He demanded that every person who saw him bow down in his presence and that everybody would play into his hand. And everyone began to do that except for one person. Mordecai was not mortified by Haman. He was not threatened by him at all. Consequently, whenever Haman passed by, Mordecai would be the only one in a long row of people that was still standing. Everybody else dropped to their knees and you could hear their foreheads thumping on the ground as they were almost acting as if Haman needed to be worshipped. And then there's Mordecai who stands there who said, I will bow before only one and I have only one God and his name is Jehovah and he would not bow before another man. How do you think that made Haman feel? This egotistical, bigoted, arrogant man was insulted beyond belief. It was not enough that he wanted to just try to get back up Mordecai. He decided that he wanted to destroy all of the Jewish people to annihilate an entire nation. And in the middle of this, we can pause again and take another characteristic look at what a good father is. We need to know that children catch character from good fathers. Please note that there was a built-in character in Mordecai. And if you're acquainted with the book of Esther, you know that before the story is over, she's going to demonstrate courage that will save a nation. 
But where do you think she learned it from? Here's what we need to know. A crisis does not develop character. Crisis reveals character. Let me say that again in case you missed it. Crisis does not develop character. Crisis reveals the character that is within one. And dads, this next statement is just as important. Character is not taught. Children catch character. Character is not taught. Character is caught. You see, children don't like lectures. They don't like it when father sits down with them and says, listen, this is what you've got to do when they recognize that my dad may be t saying this to me, but he doesn't live this way. You know, your children are going to end up doing what you do more than what you say. And so be a person that your character shines through so that they can catch that. Because apparently Esther caught some courage. Because the story that goes on from now on is all about courage. As we move on to scene five, we've met Mordecai, we've met Haman. We know all that Haman wants to kill all of the Jewish people. And so that decision is made and he convinces Xerxes that it's necessary to wipe this Jewish people from the face of the earth. And so the people in Susa are thrown into pandemonium because many of them are Jews and they know that their lives are over. And Mordecai begins to weep and begins to fast. And when Esther, his daughter, sees him weeping and fasting, she inquires as to what has happened. And he responds with the words that we now know are some of the most important words of this story. When he says to his daughter, Esther, you may have been chosen queen for such a time as this. Which brings us to a third point. Good fathers challenge their children to live life with a purpose. Folks, I want you to see what's happening. It's not easy for Mordecai to send his beloved Esther right into the throne room of the king. It's not easy for fathers because we recognize today it's not easy for us to send our kids to college or to send our kids to summer camp or even sometimes to send them to grandmothers because we like to protect our children. But Mordecai knew that there was a time in which a child's life matures and he or she has a purpose, which begs another question. Dad, what is the purpose we're challenging our children to live for? What is the purpose that we are preparing them for, equipping them for? Are we helping them have great dreams about God's kingdom? Are we challenging them to think great thoughts about God's church? Are we equipping them for that time when they will be released and then do we back off and let God lead them and control them and the plans that he has for them? Because that's what Mordecai did. Esther knows something. She knows that she can't just go walking into the king's throne room. Even though she is his wife, she knows that if she goes there and he doesn't give her the permission to enter, then her head will come off. And so she can't go unless she's invited. So she tells all of the Jewish people, Please spend three days fasting and praying for me. And look what happens in chapter 5. You're going to love this. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's hall. Now, this is a smart and savvy woman. She puts on her nicest clothes she probably smells fantastic. She's looking good. She knows that the way to King Xerxes' brain is through his eyes. 
And she just stands there at the doorway, not in the throne room, but just outside so that when he looks up, he can see her. And she just stands there. Now, there's a difference between the way she does things and the way guys does, do things because she doesn't go rushing in like a guy would. She doesn't make any demands like a guy would. She just stands there just in the place where he can see off the side and she looks good. And it says that Xerxes lifted his eyes and as he's talking, he catches her and he sees her and he does a double take and he looks at her again. And as he is staring at her, his eyes begin to grow wider and wider. And the king saw her standing in the doorway and he says, wow, 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 wow. She is gorgeous. Now, the loose, that's a loose translation of the actual Hebrew because the guy's heart is beating and his sweat is pouring from his brow. And when he saw her, the scripture says... When he saw her, he was pleased. That is the biggest understatement of any scripture there is in the Bible. He's pleased. And he says to her, come on in. And she goes in. And he says to her, what do you want? She looked so good and she had prepared herself so well in prayer and preparation that he sees her and he makes this offer. I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she recognizes then that she really has pushed all the right buttons. And she says to him, I just want to have lunch with you, honey. Just you and me, a little banquet, you can invite Haman. And he's probably a little disappointed that Haman is invited, but he goes to the party the next day. Esther, Xerxes, and Haman. And then when the party is over that day, he says to her, please tell me, what do you want? And she says, I would like to have another party tomorrow. You begin to get the idea that they're partying people, don't you? And so they set up another banquet for tomorrow. And Haman leaves this banquet and he is so proud of himself. I mean, he has just had dinner with the king and the queen and he's been the only one that's been invited and he has a repeat performance tomorrow. And so he struts out of the throne room and he walks around and as he goes outside, all the people see him instantly fall to their knees except for Mordecai who just stands there and says, can you believe this guy? Can you just believe him? And so he goes home, and when he gets home, he tells his wife and his family, I just had the greatest day of my life, but it's been spoiled by that jerk Mordecai who will not respect me and will not bow before me. And so his friends and his wife say, listen, the guy's a pain in the neck, so why don't you just break his neck? Why don't you have him hanged? Build a gallows. Make it tall so that everybody in the land can see it. Tell the king you want him hung, and then everybody will know you're the boss. And he says, that's a great idea. And before he goes to bed, he leaves instructions for a gallows that's 75 feet tall to be built right outside of the castle. And he goes to bed and he's sleeping good knowing that tomorrow he's going to get to take care of the one that he has felt has disrespected him. But while he slept good that night, the king couldn't sleep very well. In fact, maybe he had a little indigestion from the banquet, we don't know, but he couldn't sleep. And so he had the court officials come in and read the court records. Does anybody remember those court records we talked about a little while ago? Well, they were brought in. I don't think, I, when I read this, I don't think that he read the court records because he was really interested in what was in them as much as he thought they are so boring, they will put me right to sleep. And so the court official begins to read, and he reads about a time when two men by the name of Big Thana and Teresh plotted against Xerxes, and Mordecai overheard them, told Esther the plan, it was nipped in the bud. The king turned to the official and said, hey, did we ever do anything for that guy, Mordecai? 
Did we ever give him a medal or any gold or recognition or anything like that for him? And he said, nope, we didn't do anything. And Haman shows up the next morning, getting ready for another great day of hanging out with the king and the queen. And the king says to Haman, what should we do for a wonderful guy? If I really wanted to honor a hero, someone who's earned my loyalty and my respect, what do you suggest that I do for him? And Haman, being the egotistical guy he is, thinks that he's talking about him. And so he said, I'd let him wear your robe. I would let him wear your crown. I would let him ride on your horse. I would make sure that as he's led through the streets, everybody bows down and worship him. And Xerxes says, that's a great idea. I want you to go out and do that for Mordecai. And Haman's face changes colors. And so this man who had hoped to destroy Mordecai ends up leading him through the streets on the king's horse with his robe and crown. And he is so disgusted, he almost forgets that there's a banquet that he has to run to. He runs to get to the banquet, and there's the king and the queen eating, and he sits down with them, and he begins to eat. And finally, the king looks at Esther, and he says, Now, please tell me, honey, what is it that you really want? And she says, I'll tell you. There is a man who is so villainous and evil that he wants to destroy all of my people. And the king leans back, and he begins to stiffen his neck, and he says, Who is it? And she points her finger right at Haman's nose. And the king is so angered that he stands up and he runs out of the banquet hall. And Haman, recognizing the danger he is in, runs over to Queen Esther, trying to get her to change her mind. As he grabs a hold of her, she falls onto the bed and the king walks back in the room just as this takes place. And it looks as if Haman is now after the king's own wife. And the king snaps his finger and the next thing you know, Haman is being hung on the gallows that he had created that day for Mordecai to hang on. And Mordecai is soon elevated to take the place of Haman. And we're left with some interesting lessons, three takeaway truths. Number one, never underestimate the providence of God. Some of you have a Haman in your life right now, a troublemaker, someone who's a thorn in your flesh. I want you to remember that this story is not over. The sovereign Lord and the hand of the sovereign God is upon you and he is maneuvering your story where he will get glory out of it in the end. So don't give up. Don't throw in the towel. The sovereign God is still working on your behalf. Number two, never underestimate the influence of a good father. Dads, there are so many of you that are pouring seeds into your young children and you haven't seen the fruit yet come out of their lives. But I want you to know, be faithful and be consistent with them. Because someday you may be raising a child that will change the world. And if they don't change the world, maybe they'll change their neighborhood. He or she may change their workforce. But may God give you the strength and the wisdom to say at the right time, you may be in the kingdom for such a moment as this. May he give you the right words to say when you speak into the life of your child, your son and daughter, and speak words that will lift them up and encourage them that all of the gifts that God has placed in their life, you may be able to maneuver and bring out so they can be used at just the right time. There are some things only a father can say to their child. And then lastly, never underestimate the significance of a disciple. She was a little Jewish girl. She was an orphan girl when we first met her. But when we leave her, she is the queen of Persia. Some of you come from humble beginnings. Some of you came from an obscure place. 
Some of you never felt that you would amount to anything, but here's what I want you to know. Remain faithful to God. Hear his call upon your life. Don't bow before the Hamans of this world. And when you feel that God is sending you as an arrow, being released by the archer into an appropriate destination of history, then go. Go in God's speed and go in God's power. For perhaps it was for this reason that you came to be on this earth. So on this Father's Day, remember these three things. Good fathers keep deciding to be fathers. Your children catch character. And good fathers challenge their children to live for a purpose. You might be tempted to say at the end of the story, that is inconceivable. Not when God is writing the story. Father, I pray for every father that is listening to me today that you would allow us to live our lives under your direction so that what we instill into our children and those that we influence will have your fingerprints all over them. For God, you are writing their story. And I pray that their story may be as powerful as the story of an orphan that became a queen because Mordecai invested in her and raised her and chose to be a dad, chose to let her see his character and invested in her nature. So, Father, we pray that this will be a blessing to many. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, everyone. I pray that you were blessed by the message that we just heard from Pastor Doug. Um, and happy Father's Day to every father that is watching this video right now. I pray that you, you just have an awesome day surrounded by loved ones who uh, just communicate with you how special you are to them. Uh, we are so excited because next week is going to be our official coming back together, though it's going to be limited and it's going to look different for a little while. Um, just make sure that you're checking out our social medias. That way you can know what the process is going to look like for a little bit until we can come back together at full capacity. We also have a graduation Sunday that's coming up on July 12th. And so if you have graduated from either high school or college, please just get in contact with me and make sure that you are here on July 12th so that we can celebrate with you on your accomplishment in such a trying season that we have all just gone through. And so again, make sure that you're following our social medias just to know what's happening here at Grace Assembly. We love you so much. And again, happy Father's Day.